This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. At the heart of every ordination, there is an echo of this call and response. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Here am I. Send me. Now, of course, we gather today to acknowledge the hard work that Alex and Jane have done over the years to reach this day. We applaud Alex's considerable academic achievements, his sacrifices, and his desire to serve the church. But underneath all of this, we have this amazing supernatural dialogue. God, the creator of the universe, has issued a call. And Alex, frail and fragile as he knows he is, and we do also, has accepted it. Here am I. Send me. The scriptures record a number of these moments. We begin with Abraham, caught up in the chaos of a scattered and confused world. He, is, he was given his marching orders to leave all that was familiar and head for a land that he had never seen. But he did go with a promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So off he went, and we've all been blessed. And then there's Moses, an 80-year-old man, living in exile, working as a shepherd, caring for the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Not very impressive when you consider the promise of his early years. He had been miraculously preserved at birth and grew up in the privileged courts of the mighty Pharaoh. But later he kills an Egyptian and becomes a fugitive sojourner in the land of Midian. But God had not forgotten him. The angel of the Lord manifests God's presence in a burning bush, and God called to Moses, Moses, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have come to rescue them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And as you may recall, Moses needed a little more encouragement to accept God's call and move out, but eventually he did. He went, and his world and our world were forever changed. And then there's the call of Jeremiah. He was also hesitant about his qualifications and even tries to argue with the Lord. It doesn't go well. 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Oh Lord, oh Lord God, I truly I didn't know how to speak, for I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And so off he goes. Now, not every call is quite as dramatic, but there's always this underlying dialogue. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. For my own call, the voice I heard did not come from a burning bush but from the far end of a New Haven railroad car. The train that I rode every day to and from New York City where I worked for Mobile Oil Corporation. That night the train was packed, standing room only, but we still followed the strict convention of the day and that is that no one spoke out loud. This was of course before pre-mobile phones. This man dared to speak out loud and his words were plaintive. I've retired today. And I don't know what I'll do with the rest of my life. His voice echoed through the train. Most people ignored him. But his words stayed in my head for weeks afterwards. I couldn't ignore them. I knew that I did not want to be that man. I didn't want to invest my life in a career that would leave me empty 40 years later. What do you want me to do? I asked the Lord. And over the next few months, it became clear that God was calling me to leave the corporate world that I loved and take on the challenge of ordained ministry. I was not convinced I was ready. Like Jeremiah, I tried to argue with God. I did lose the argument, but was given the most amazing adventure that I could ever have imagined. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. Now, today's scripture passage from Isaiah 6, which is wonderfully read by Lydia, includes a description of Isaiah's call, but much more besides that I want to consider with you. Let me set the context. People had been mocking God for too long. They had taken his name in vain and had ridiculed his apparent slowness to intervene in their world. They are called evil good and good evil. They boast of their own cleverness, especially the academics who love to flaunt their so-called knowledge. Alcohol was, abuse was rampant and corruption rife, even among the government officials whose job it was to enforce the law. No, I'm not reading from today's news. I'm simply paraphrasing the last few verses of Isaiah chapter 5. And yet the description is disturbingly relevant for today. So the Lord's anger burned against his people. His hand was raised, ready to strike them down, but he withheld his judgment, giving them one more opportunity to turn back to him. And God did this by appearing to a young man who was worshiping in Solomon's temple. His name was Isaiah. Time was around 740 BC, the year that King Uzziah died. And if you have a Bible near you or on your phone, 
You can take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, where you will see the encounter described in some of the most beautiful prose ever written. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now notice how he gives us the details of experience, of this experience. We even have the, the moment in history when Isaiah was confronted with the living reality of God. There was none of the, the vague euphemisms that cloak so much of our contemporary Christian experience. Isaiah saw the Lord, and he knew it. He saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up, and his train, his royal robes, filled the temple. Now, what an experience. You know, I can still recall the first time I glimpsed something of the holy otherness of God. I was an 11-year-old Baptist boy, and it was our monthly Boy Scout parade. And this particular Sunday, we were to worship in a high Anglican church that used lots of incense, sanctus bells, vestments, solemn chants, the like. It was almost like ascension. And I was awestruck. This little Baptist boy, I'd never seen anything like it. I knew somehow there's something otherworldly, something kind of supernatural going on. But that was nothing compared to the experience of Isaiah. Look at what happened next. Above him, that is above the Lord, was seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. You know, this is the only time in, that seraphs are mentioned in the Bible, and they appear to be angelic beings of tremendous splendor, who serve the Lord with great humility. Notice how they actually cover their faces before the Lord. And they seem to correspond in some ways to the living creatures described in the book of Revelation to John. They also have six wings and sing the same song of praise. And we still sing it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we sing that every time as part of our Eucharistic celebration. And this triple repetition is a Hebrew way of underscoring the infinite holiness of God. And then at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. You see, Jonathan, incense really is okay. It mentions it here. Okay. Don't you wish you'd been there? I mean, wouldn't it have been spectacular to see that? It's also a reminder of the time when God spoke at Mount Sinai. And the mountain shook and was covered with smoke, and the people of Israel were terrified. So was Isaiah, and so would you have been. But Isaiah's response is far more than simple fear. Look at his words. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, when Isaiah was confronted with the infinite holiness of God, he's also brought face to face with his own uncleanness. You know, personal holiness is not a very popular subject for teaching and preaching these days. We are far more comfortable with the relativistic culture of which we're all contributing members. Now, let's face it, it's much more comforting to compare ourselves with the people around us rather than with God's standards because we can always find somebody to make us look pretty good. And that's why we all squirm when we 
hear Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect or be holy. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's a high calling, and we're all called to personal holiness according to God's standards. And that's why we begin with Isaiah on our knees saying, Woe to me, O Lord, have mercy. And notice also that the first area where Isaiah feels convicted is in the use of his mouth. Don't ever underestimate the power of your words. We're all people of unclean lips, and we live in a society of people with unclean lips, and we all need help. You know, Alex, one of the, the great privileges of ordained ministry is the opportunity to preach the Word of God to the people of God. It can be a terrifying responsibility because we're actually daring to speak in the name of God. And our words can have eternal consequences in the lives of the people to whom we speak. You know, sermons are not merely TED Talks. They're intended to be a supernatural moment where people can encounter the life-giving Word of God through our words. And Alex, never take that privilege lightly or reluctantly. Oh, I've got a sermon to do. You know, Terry Fulham was one of my mentors. Some of you have heard of him. He was a professor of biblical studies before becoming rector of St. Paul's Church in Darien, Connecticut. He was a brilliant preacher with an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. And one of his memorable one-liners was, never stroll reluctantly to the pulpit. Always run expectantly. There is nothing more important. And good preaching takes time. Terry told me to expend, expect to spend an hour in the study for every minute in the pulpit. And over the years, I found that to be a useful guide. Alex, there's also something about your words that you'll quickly learn. As an ordained person, you are a representative person. You represent Jesus, fundamentally. You represent the church in its widest sense, and also your own congregation. You even speak for the diocese of which you're part, and the bishop under whose authority you're ordained to serve. It's a little overwhelming at times, but it's something you must learn and relearn. Read the epistle of James if you need convincing. Now, as a bishop, I continue to be surprised, sometimes alarmed, by the way in which people give, my, give more weight to my words than I intend. As perhaps you've noticed, I still enjoy my heritage of English humor, but I've learned to be careful because there is power in my words. For this reason, I'm a very reluctant user of social media because the thoughtless word can quickly become viral and circle the globe before you can explain yourself more carefully. I also have to watch the ever-changing array of acronyms. For a time, Angela and I thought LOL mean lots of love, if one of our grandchildren corrected us. Watch your words. But help is available. So let's go back to Isaiah. 
Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In this dramatic picture, we are brought face to face with the fact that we cannot atone for our own sins. We cannot take enough personal growth classes or read enough self-improvement books if we are to be made right with God, and all of us know we're not right. Then we have to be willing to accept God's action on our behalf. The call that was taken from the altar was a preview of what Jesus would do for each one of us on the cross at Calvary. In the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness for our sins. And this forgiveness is the first step in purifying our hearts, cleaning up our lips and preparing us for lives of service. This graphic act of atonement is also part of the drama of the Eucharist, because in, in those simple elements of bread and wine, we are proclaiming the Lord's atoning death until he comes again. You know, Alex, another dimension of your ordained ministry is presiding at Holy Communion. And again, never take it lightly. I've been to places where they pride themselves how fast they can say the words. It's appalling. If you want to go fast, don't do it. It doesn't matter how many times you preside, it is always an awesome responsibility. You know, when I instructed lay Eucharistic ministers at Truro Church, where I served as rector for 16 years, I would always remind them that they were there, they were serving the people, when they served the people with bread or wine, always remember that they were participants in a supernatural transaction and properly prepare themselves. And the same is true for you. Take time to pray before and after you serve. It is a sacred moment. Now finally, let's look at the last verse of our text. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And here we have what I consider to be a template of true worship. See, Isaiah confronts the holiness of God. He then recognizes his own unworthiness. He accepts God's forgiveness. And in grateful response, he offers his life. See, that's biblical worship. And it's always incomplete without the, without the fourth step, a personal response to the call to serve. And while today we are focusing on Alex, who's to be ordained, we must always remember that the church doesn't only need more clergy. It needs more mothers and fathers, politicians, lawyers, actors, musicians, teachers, businessmen and women who know that they have been called by the Lord into their particular vocation. Men and women who will look prayerfully for all kinds of creative opportunities to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ in their own daily lives, at home and at work.
My friends, all of you who've gathered here to, to pray for and to honor Alex, remember the Lord is looking for men and women who will follow the example of Isaiah, who having encountered the Holy Lord in worship, are willing to acknowledge their own unworthiness, to receive God's forgiveness, and then are willing to serve him in the world. I pray that you will be those men and women. But Alex, please stand now if you wouldn't mind. I have a special word for you. And I've stolen it from Second Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And everybody said? Amen. amen. By the way, this is not a good amen. Amen means yes, I agree. Amen? Yeah. Mm. That's your charge. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for Alex and for his family. I pray you continue to bless them, guard them, protect them, all for your own namesake. Amen.